Welcome to the Momentum Lifestyle Podcast, where we interview an inspiring, educational, and entertaining guest to help you build confidence, find balance, and live a life of impact. We'd like to thank our sponsor today, Be Spunky. Now, Blake, Janelle, and myself have been using their Reboot product for well over six months now, and it has been life-changing. I found myself recovering faster, having way more energy throughout the day, and honestly feeling just more jacked up as a man. And this is because Reboot is clinically formulated to support healthy male hormone levels, providing stress relief, improved strength and stamina, enhanced drive, and overall well-being. B-Spunky Reboot contains a proprietary blend of 10 natural and organic herbs and active ingredients that are renowned for helping men to enhance physical and cognitive performance, improve stamina, energy, and endurance, optimize testosterone levels, support healthy reproductive function, support cardiovascular function, relieve stress, mild anxiety, irritability, relieve tiredness, fatigue, support healthy sleep patterns, and support healthy body weight. So as you can see, it is a must-have product for all men. So head to their website, bespunky.com.au. That's B-E-S-P-U-N-K-I.com.au and use the code MOMENTUM to receive 10% off all Bespunky products. Darren Burgess, welcome to the podcast. Cheers, Blake. Happy to, uh, happy to be on it, man. Mate, uh, very excited about talking all things football. It's uh, great for it to be back. It's a long six months in between um, sessions and a good six months for me as a Demon supporter, which we'll touch on yeah. soon. But um, for those that uh, don't know your story or your history, can you give a little bit of background as to where you've come from and where you're at now? I've been at a few clubs now, mate, but um, in the AFL, I uh, started my career with the Sydney Swans back in 1997, so a long time ago. Uh, had a few years there in a few different roles. And then uh, in AFL, went to Port Adelaide 2000, end of 2004 to 2000, end of 2007. And then uh, Port Adelaide again, end of 2012 to midway through 2017. The D's uh, from the end of 19 through till uh, six months ago, and you were probably I'm not sure how much you remember of that game, but um, yeah, till after that. And then uh, now I'm with the Crows and we're, we're one game in to the season, all in, in pretty much, I guess you'd call it the high performance manager role, head fitness coach, whatever term you want to use. But mm. um, uh, in soccer, uh, I've been involved with the Socceroos um, through their 2010 World Cup campaign uh, into South Africa and went over there as as uh, head of fitness and conditioning and then went to Liverpool and had uh, two and a bit, two and a half seasons over there and then uh, two seasons at Arsenal finishing in uh, end of 19 as uh, director of performance there. So um, a few different roles, mate. Plenty. You've been in the game a long time. Mate, um, high performance manager, I... To be honest, I was surprised when I was listening to your podcast, your actual podcast, and um, you're giving a breakdown of the, the role that it is. And I assume potentially over a, what, 20-odd year period, it's changed a fair bit from the team that you might have had support you back from the Swans days to what you would have had in the Demons time. But what does that role look like and what do you actually kind of oversee from a formal position? 
Yeah, I guess, and, and uh, I'll just warn you that we're in the middle of the workday here, so people may come in and ask questions from time to time, but that's okay. So I guess the role is to oversee all aspects of performance. So depending on which club um, and which role you have, predominantly it's all aspects of the fitness, the nutrition, the rehabilitation, the medical treatment, the, uh, all aspects of player preparation, uh, travel, scheduling, those sorts of things. Uh, in in some roles, I've overseen all the statisticians and performance analysis as well. So and psychologists. So um, it's a broad role, um, and uh, yeah, it's one that has probably evolved uh, or, or become a mainstay in AFL clubs over the last probably fifteen years, maybe. Mm. Um, and worldwide, it's becoming more and more prevalent. Um, yeah, so it's it's. It's all encompassing, I guess. Uh, it's some people are less on the park now and more um, strategy and things like that. I like to be on the park. I think it sort of garners a bit of respect for the players when when you're actually out there delivering and moving around with them and um, and putting up with the banter and the, the crappy jokes and those sorts of things. So um, I'll try and do that as long as I can. Um, but there's also merit in not being out there and, and letting staff do that. Uh, so yeah, it's a it's a great role. I, I really enjoy doing it, um, uh, even when we lose by one point, like we did yesterday. Yeah, it's it's funny. Before we well, not funny for you at all, mate. Still pretty probably <laughs> fresh and quite yeah. raw. But twenty four hours after your first game, and and just before we um, got on air, you mentioned that you tend not to see the impact that you have as a high performance manager as influential in the first half of the year as the second half of the year. How, how is that the case and what does that look like from your end? Yeah, I think, um, so Phil Walsh was a great friend of mine and, and um, yeah, we spent hours and hours working and talking together. He would always say that the fitness coach's impact is in the first five games. Um, and I can see that point of view um, because uh, you know your preparation is is obviously really important in the first five games after that his theory is that players get adapted to the rigors of of AFL um, I, I think while that might have some influence I think the back end of seasons in finals and things like that are when we can really have influence and that comes down to player availability how well you've been able to keep a list available um, and also through resilience and robustness. I think that comes to the fore at the back end of the season when players are able to um, withstand the rigours of the contact, um, particularly through the winter months when it's a bit more miserable and, you know, it's a bit sloppier and some of the games aren't as cleaner uh, as, as they are at the moment. So that's when I think the management of individuals within a 45-man squad becomes really important. Um, nowadays with medical subs and and SNFL games on different days, VFL games on different days, you don't get the same um, exposure for every player. So your ability to manage each player becomes important. So I think at the back end of the season, that that becomes really, um, the, the, the volume on that sort of stuff gets turned up a lot. Mm. You've mentioned, you use that, I think I've listened to a number of your interviews now and you use the word robustness and resilience a lot in your languaging. What does that mean from a um, high performance and a physical point of view? What exactly are you talking about with those two terms? Yeah, I think it's the ability to, so the robustness is your body's ability to withstand 
the demands of being a professional footballer. So in an AFL point of view, that is training as well as games. I think um, back a, a little while ago, it used to be just play games and get yourself up for the games and training during the year. Um, during the week is not as important. I think differently. I think um, uh, you need to train really well in order to build up that tolerance and that robustness and your body's ability to handle uh, the demands of the game. So when I talk about robustness, it's and preseason for me is developing that robustness in the players. The resilience uh, comes in two parts, both mental and physical. There's the physical component, which is the robustness. Um, and then there's the mental component in that you need to be uh, mentally able to withstand the pressures, both external and internal, um, you know, selection contract, um, poor performances, pressured shot at goals, you know, those sorts of things um, become really important. And one, um, it's very hard to have one without the other. Um, most players will tell you if you don't complete a full pre-season, you go into the season with some doubts. Um, uh, and so then the body robustness is affecting the mental resilience. So um, whereas, you know, if you've completed everything in pre-season, yep, I'm confident that I can handle whatever the game throws at me. Mm. What do you what do you do to build the mental resilience? And I'm, I'm obviously as a very keen Demons fan, I want, I'm keen to break down everything from the kind of physical, um, mental, and even the kind of emotional um changes in what I saw and I'd be interested what it looked like from the back end maturity between you know the space of three years in terms of their ability to stay on course um, and stay really level-headed last year when they got challenged at different points but how do you um, like what are you doing from a cultural point of view to shift that and even on game day what are you potentially doing and correct me if I'm wrong I think it was you who was in charge of Stephen May's hamstring and you languaged it a certain way for him not to kind of whether it was a qualifying final or yeah, sorry, it was the, yeah it was the prelim and yeah. I remember him saying something in one of his interviews and I'm sure it was he was referencing you you got him to think about his hamstring in a certain way to I guess essentially not have too much doubt and and um, have that impact so what does that look like in terms of changing on a cultural level and, and what might be some individual examples of of the mental component yeah, I guess there's a few um, points to that question, but with the D's in particular and, and you know, without giving the, the world away because they're still, um, you know, well and truly in that window and, and I absolutely love the club and the, and the people involved. Um, the players decided that themselves. So when I got to the club, they'd had the prelim and then they'd had the next year um, where they finished second last, I think it was. You'd be able to tell me better than me, yep. but it was a yep. disappointing year. Um, and uh, they decided themselves that enough was enough, and the, the inconsistency um, uh, was was becoming frustrating for them. So they determined that they wanted to work hard, and they said to me, "We really want to work hard and and be challenged, and we'll accept anything that you throw at us." So. Um, they and the coaching staff deserve an incredible amount of credit. My, my job and our job as a performance and medical team is to not interfere with that and to complement that. Mm. So I often say to people, it, it's, 
my job and our job to not mess it up for the players and coaches. Um, so uh, they wanted that hard work and, and we challenged them. And in that first year when we came ninth, I saw a lot of growth in those players. Um, and I thought, yep, we're on the right path. And I think Goody referenced a couple of games up there that we had to win uh, in the hub towards the last part of the season that ultimately didn't get us into the finals. But the fact that we could beat GWS um, and Essendon in those last two games made us think, oh, we've got a pretty good team here. And, um, and so then the players again decided that uh, it was going to be really team-focused. And that made our job as coaching and fitness stuff and performance stuff really easy because we could reference everything back to team. So they wouldn't be concerned in any way, shape or form with individual accolades. And I'm not saying that was that in the past, but they decided to put a really big focus on. So once you do that as a group, it's amazing um, how much simpler the game becomes. And suddenly a, um, you know, and, and I get fired up talking about it because an Alex Neil Bullen or a Charlie Spargo, um, just their roles in games are not to get 15 possessions and four goals. Um, and you look at, and fans might look at the stats sheet and see Alex Neil Bullen or Charlie Spargo getting six possessions. But what they've done off ball defensively has stopped the Western Bulldogs coming through the corridor or the Swans coming through the corridor. And so um, as soon as you start to buy into that, then it makes everyone's job a whole lot easier because the pressure to change the game and win the game is not there for each player. Um, so they decided that. And what we tried to do as a performance team is provide that environment. So, um, yeah, the Stephen May example, um, if, and this is just, this is not new. It's not, it sounds, and, and Maisie mentioned it straight after the game, which we didn't want him to. And so <laughs> he sort of let the cat out of the bag, but he was so pumped to play because he went through what he did and what the, the doctors and physios did in that, that two weeks was outstanding. But I sat him down in the prelim and just during, while the game's going on, because we were going to win, you know, it, it, in the middle, towards the end of the third quarter, when we took him off, we knew the game was over. Um, and I just said, mate, you will play the grand final. And he said, yeah, but I, I think I've done my hammy. And I said, yeah, you may have. But from what I've seen in, in you know, in soccer and years in the Premier League, um, two weeks, we'll rehab this just fine, mate. Yeah, I promise you, you'll play. If you believe in it, you'll be playing here this time in two weeks. No problem at all. And he said, okay, I, I believe you. And so we went down that path of, of, displaying to him and everybody else that if he hit every objective marker and, and what we didn't probably highlight is how serious the injury was. Mm. But what we know, and there's a lot of research around this, is that um, there, there are players throughout, you know, certainly my history have played with grade two, grade three hamstrings, grade two probably, grade three is a bit tougher, um, hamstring injuries because there's a lot of muscles around that can help support mm the injured muscle. So if players will buy into that and you can demonstrate that and we were able to do that. So it wasn't just me saying you will play, you will play any hocus pocus. We tested him, he trained, he fully trained the Wednesday before. So we felt it was a, a risk, but a risk worth taking with such an important player in such an important game. Um, but it, if it wasn't the grand final, he wouldn't have played. Um, but in that two weeks time, we, we all worked really hard to, 
two-week period, we all, we all worked really hard to demonstrate to Steve that he was ready to play. Mm. You talk about the selflessness, um, and I know I heard a lot about Neil Bullen and Spargo, and Brayshaw was the one who also got a lot of attention yeah. for the work that he did off the ball. What does that look like during a pre-season? So that there's, there's buy-in from words in terms of what you want to um, stand for and represent as, and like as a fanatic, I could see the difference. And, you know, obviously in-house, you'd have a lot more insight in the previous years, but as an outsider and it was kind of well publicized from, you know, commentators and everything that they felt that there was a lack of unity in terms of a few players playing for themselves. But what does it look like on the inside from the moment that you decide that they're, you know, that one of your top values all of a sudden becomes selflessness and that resilience. What does it look like on a micro level? How how did you see a difference in the way they train, the way they prepare, that the unity amongst the club? Yeah, I think um, if if I'm working in the NFL, um, the NBA, not every team, of course, but and in the Premier League, what is what the rewards are there are financial, fame. Um, if the rewards are flipped a little bit, and in our sport, there are those rewards, of course, but they're not for everybody and people sort of accept that. And if the rewards are um, highlighted, have a look at what uh, Angus Brayshaw did off the ball here from the behind the goals vision. We're not going to show you Christian Petrarca's goal from the boundary line or Cosy Pickett's five steps and snap over his head. We're going to show you these things. Um, if the rewards are that way, then players will start to buy into it. Mm. Um, so in pre-season, um, our job was to prepare the players for the worst-case scenario that they might have in the game, and that might be Alex Neil Bullen having to run 2,500 of high-speed medias and touching the ball four times. So during the game, his body is saying, I've seen this, I've done this before, this is no problem, this is no problem. Um, so the physical job was to prepare players for that scenario and then the coaches and leadership people and all that sort of stuff, and importantly the leading players, job was to value the selfless acts and that can be uh, tidying up a locker room or it can be uh, helping me put away cones or something like that, or it can be um, holding shape um, to stop a switch into the corridor. And so I think once you start to value all of those things internally, um, the, the results then follow. It doesn't follow straight away, but ultimately it will. And, you know, what we had in the Ds was a group of leaders. And what I loved about that, um, this flies in the face a little bit, but what I loved about these leadership setup was that um, it was in the leadership meetings was Alan Richardson, Simon, and these guys have spoken about this, so I'm not giving away. It was Alan Richardson, Simon Goodwin, myself, the players, and Daniel McPherson. That's it. There was no, um, you know, company that came in to help or anything like that. So it was really about um, on-field and off-field stuff, a really simple sort of balance and the players drove that and players deserve all the um, credit in the world for us. So the guys that you've, you, you've grown up watching and, you know, in terms of Gorn, Petrarca, May, Lever, Brayshaw, um, 
I reckon I've forgotten one person out of there, and Jack Viney. Um, they, they were just incredible leaders and as good as I've seen at any club. Hmm. Have you read Legacy? Yeah. Yeah. It, yeah. What, what you said there, just the sweeping of the sheds bit, is a um, really kind of resonates in terms of what the All Blacks do and just the humility to kind of clean up after yourself and not just get caught up in, in yeah. the carry-on. I think I think some some of that legacy stuff was embellished a little bit, having spent some time with the All Blacks and knowing what yep. they do. What they do have, which very few people have, uh, very few elite organisations that are as successful as those, is mm. they have genuine humility mm. and genuine purpose to leave the place and the organisation and the the team in a better place than what they found it. Mm. And if that means self sacrifice, then so be it. And a team that has won that often and that much, it's pretty rare to find that anywhere in the world. Um, so, yeah, even though the sweep the sheds is, is a little bit embellished and everybody sort of goes with it, the genuine belief that um, we will do whatever we can to make this place better, not for me to get another deal, not for me to get 10 possessions and kick a goal, but to make this place better. So now uh, from a Melbourne Demons point of view, um, You've got Tom Sparrow, Jimmy Jordan. These people come up and say, this is how we do it. This is just how we do it. So the future of the club becomes in a really good place. And that's obviously, you know, what we're trying to build here at the Crows and what every club's trying to build, really. Um, And time will tell whether the Demons are able to hold on to that. But if I was a betting person, I would say yes, because the people in there are really good quality. Obviously, on the scoreboard, there's a lot of differences between 2020 and 2021. Um, but as you said, I think you started to feel the back end of 2020 with a couple of good wins at the, the end of the season that it was starting to kind of stick. What does it look like culturally? Um, I know when you did an interview on your podcast, there were two players, Bailey Fritch and Max Gorn, who didn't miss a session. What is, what's the difference, even if it's minute? Now, you obviously mentioned the buy-in in terms of the selflessness and that becoming you know, almost the, the priority from a values point of view. But what are the smaller things? And obviously, I'm mindful of what you can give away and you can't. But what other smaller things did you notice, whether it's even people's energy or just the way they went about things that really was the difference between you know, ninth in 2020 and first in 2021? Yeah, it's a, it's a good question, Blake. And if I speak generally, and you'll be able to join the dots, um, if uh, I'm trying to um, think of examples, if you see your captain not missing a single session and valuing that, mm. it's pretty hard for you to then say, you know what, my back's a bit tight. I'm just going to, you know, I've, I've had a fight with my boyfriend, girlfriend. I've, you know, had a few drinks on the weekend. I better, it's pretty hard to... Max Gorn went to a funeral at uh, 10, 10 a.m. one morning and um, myself and, and Selwyn Griffiths met him at 6 a.m. at Casey so that he would do a session on the morning of that funeral in the preseason. Um, that, that's, that's extraordinary sort of um, leadership. So in general terms, um, what does it look like culturally? Um, if you don't value every single session that you do and attempt to get better at every single session, um, then, and, and there'll be players and coaches that might listen to this, I've no idea who say, yeah, but I've taken the foot off a little bit. 
um, at different times, and I still want a Norm Smith or whatever. And maybe, maybe that there are outliers like that, and there are exceptions. But as a general rule, at every session, you can't expect to train um, at half paced and then just turn it on when the game comes. And Christian Petrarca is the best example of that that I can think of in my twenty odd years in sport. Um, he decided that he was going to train at an intensity that was through the roof, and we just could not believe the person that came back in uh, 2020 season. And the coaches were like, "My goodness, he's he's a different human." And he just decided that he was going to train at that level. And he was as jovial and as um, uh, humorous about it. Like Virgil got best on again today, and. But if I said, hang on, I thought Salem was a little bit better too. He took that took that as a, you know, as a real front and, okay, I'm going to do better the next day. Session after session, just bank them. And then it becomes habit. It just becomes habit. And that's why some of the, like the, the All Blacks, for example, they train a lot less than what we do because of the physicality of it. But every session is incredibly intense. So that come game time, it's habit. You just can't expect to um, nurse your players through a pre-season um, or in-season and then game time, no, 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 I'll just be able to switch on. And you can get away with it to a point, but it's my strong belief that when the pressure is really on, it will fold. And, and that goes to things like, um, I don't know, just, just players cutting corners at different, different times. And I'm not talking about running through to cones and those sort of more public things it might be um uh, taking the easy way out with their nutrition or you know just just little things which um in the back of your mind you know that you're doing you know that you're not quite nailing and then come game time um what what those demons knew on game day is it because of them and their um work rate and work ethic and um uh attention to detail that come four o'clock or whatever time we bounce the ball in in um, Perth, they knew that they'd done everything possible. Mm. And we could have taken the easy way out and Goody was unbelievable in this space. Um, when that prelim final was won, uh, we could have taken the easy way out and given the boys a few days off and um, also not trained as hard on the Saturday night, but we trained at the exact same time as we were going to play. We trained in the same conditions, the same light. We had a full match sim, which almost cost us Charlie Spargo. Mm. Um, but we believe that that was the best way to have them ready. And mm. and a lot of other teams might not have done that. That's okay. That's just the way that we went down. You talked about um, potentially in the past, and I'm sure with other clubs, you know, potentially nursing players through. One of the things that you spoke of in a few interviews I've heard is everyone was there no matter what. And, you know, in, in, I think you mentioned one of the, your, your running sessions, your heel sessions, 20 players rocked up. And I, I assume that was 20, year 2020, not 2021. But what does that look like with soreness and some of the stories that potentially in the past and maybe, you know, other strength and conditioning um, people might take a different road? What does that look like if there is soreness or what's their process for training um, as opposed to what, you know, you might have done in the past or other clubs do? Yeah, I think the advantage of having all this grey hair, mate, is you've seen a little bit um, uh, and you kind of know. Now, I, I did my PhD on GPS. That was it. And I thought that it was the 
most important thing in the history mm -hmm. of sport and um, uh, getting the numbers right would determine whether we won or lost. I really did in, in the early sort of, uh, I don't know, mid 2000s when GPS came out and late 2000s. Um, but now, uh, excuse me, I'm able to, to prioritise and see what hopefully is more of a holistic um, point of view on performance. So to answer your question, if there are 15 players presenting with soreness and we've had hard sessions on Monday, Wednesday, Friday, and we want to back it up with a hill session on the Saturday, um, you have to make an educated guess as to what is the benefit of the player realising that he or she can play through that little bit of soreness. Um, the only game that you ever feel close to 100% in, in an AFL season is round one. It's only downhill from there. So being able to um, push players through a little bit of discomfort um, and minimise the risk of injury is, is really important. And what my belief is, and there's plenty of others like this, is that uh, you're actually protecting the players by doing that, whereas other People may say, no, I don't want, I want to remove that risk altogether. And that's a really sound theory because if you've got Gary Ablett Jr. or Rory Sloan or Christian Petrarca, you may decide, I want to remove that risk altogether. What we decided as a group and, and certainly my philosophy over the years has been to protect that player further by exposing them to a little bit of risk mm. and, um, you know, when I got to the club, Petrarca, Salem, there's a whole bunch of players that just know they, they have never done hills before or have never trained two days in a row and those sorts of things. So we had to tread quite carefully in that space. And as a performance medical department, we said, no, this is the path we're going down. Um, and so over time, they knew that they could. And now it's just just normal. Nothing gave me greater pleasure than, than Jack Viney saying to me, I can now do a full pre-season and I just love that. And so this season, Jack Viney, I'm anticipating will have an incredible year. He's one of my favourite players and people. And uh, the fact that he's done a full pre-season is just scary. For We sort of built him from zero pre-season or very limited pre-season all the way up. Um, so I think that offers protection rather than pulling people all together. Mm. I dare say the results, you'd be happy with the results and they speak for themselves last year. You, from what I remember, it was some ridiculous record that you might have uh, topped in terms of the amount of availability you had throughout the year. And I'm trying to think off the top of my head, if anyone had any of the, you know, the starting 22 had kind of major injuries, but was there some record that you broke in terms of having availability or something? Along those yeah, lines? I did see something like that. I, I'm not sure, to be honest, but mm. because sometimes those stats, you can't really... What what gave us the most um, uh, joy as a football club and a performance department and, and medical department was the um, fact that for the back half of the year, back the finals period, mm. we had a full list and the week leading into the grand final, we actually had 45 players on the track uh, do the full session. And yeah, we, we, we took a real, uh, that was a real good, he mentioned it after the training session and said, you know, that we're in a really good space that you can have 45 players training and you have luck with that. And we lost Nita and, and Adam Tomlinson and Marty Hall with full ACL. So um, yeah, that, that, that put a dent in, um, in their seasons and our seasons as a group. 
um, but we're able to rehab them through. And, and it really was, you know, we, we, we made a few changes at the end of 2020, 2021. Um, we, we just had a really a, a superb group of um, doctors, physios, nutrition, rehab, everything. It was, it was, uh, it was a really fun group to be around. Helps when you're winning, of course. Yep. Um, but everybody was singing from the same hymn sheet, which is great. Mm, yeah, that unity must help massively. Yes. What's, I mean, you're, you're probably in a kind of, I'm trying to think where the Crows finished last year, they were bottom four? Yeah, I think maybe 15th or 16th. Or yeah, so you're in a similar position um, to where you kind of came in with the Ds. What, where does your head go? You're obviously round one, so the preseason's done and dusted, but you know, from what, October you come in to now the back end of March, what are the what do you come in with from a physical point of view, but also culturally, like expectation wise? What yeah. do you come? What play sheet do you come into the Adelaide Crows with October twenty twenty one? Yeah, I think you know there was a few, um, I guess, personal issues that led me to Adelaide um, and the Crows, um, but from a from a football point of view, this is the youngest list in the league. Um, and was last year, and from speaking to the list manager, and uh, we will be the youngest list for the next two seasons, mm. probably this season and next season. So uh, y- you have to shift your a your expectations, but b you, you program a little bit because the D's last year it had one really and many solid pre seasons, but um, one pre season with the structure that we had set up. Um, and so you could then take them a bit further again, whereas with a younger list, it's a little bit harder to, you can't just copy and paste mm. two different, you know, the Ds are well and truly in that window. So um, what do you change? You, you, that ability to back up session after session, you can't really put into a Josh Rochelle or a Jake Saligo or some of our first and second year players Um uh, but you, you're trying to push the envelope, so it's not a three or four year um, physical robustness program. It's hopefully this time next year, I can sit and talk to you and say, no, they, they've done everything and more um, that we're able to do with with other clubs. And to be fair, that this this group is as good as any group I've worked with in their appetite for work and what they're able to complete in preseason was outstanding. So. Uh, and way beyond my expectations, to be honest. So um, they're in a really good space. Um, but what you have to just change a little bit is is the expectation on on just the robustness and the the backing up from day to day because you're talking about an average age of 22 versus an average age of 25 games played of average of probably early hundreds to late hundreds versus average games played of you know 30 probably and. You know, we had players yesterday who hadn't played in two years um, mm. injury. So, um, yeah, so it, there's just a, a change. Culturally, you want to try and get the same culture and you want to try and take the lessons that you've learned, not only from the Ds, but from Arsenal and Liverpool, Port Adelaide, and 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 put them into to this environment whilst respecting, you know, the fact that these guys have, have, are on, have been on a, a certain path for a couple of years now. Yeah, I'm mindful of your time as well, and I, mate, I really appreciate this. What What do you see as the major difference between? Um, I never looked too far into your time at Arsenal, other than to kind of join a couple of the dots on one of the, your interviews. But 
What do you see as the big differences between the English Premier League and, say, the AFL, whether it's culture, whether it's, you know, just the, the, the whole kit and caboodle? What do you see as the main differences? The, the Premier League is just a machine. It really is. And um, it is just, you know, the, the role that I was in there is a slightly different role. It was a bit more suit and tie and management. And um, even though I still got out onto the field every day, um, but you were dealing with agents, contracts, loans, um, 15-year-old talented academy kids on more money than I'll ever earn versus you know, versus 32-year-old veterans who are trying to get their next contract. Um, so uh, it's just a machine. From a physical point of view, they turn up and train every day in every sort of condition. And I've said this a hundred times before. People say, yeah, but they don't get tackled. So, But they're running and they're changing direction and their accelerations, decelerations. Average game of Premier League is about 15 to 16 times more than what an AFL game is. So put that into training and they are backing up day after day. And what, what I took from it is that the body will adapt. You know, these guys that I've been lucky enough to work with over there who've never set foot in a gym have got higher rate of force development explosive than any AFL player I've come close to working with who've done four years at the IAS and five years at Carlton and Hawthorne and worked with unbelievable strength coaches yet the soccer players are stronger and faster and have more acceleration just because they've been exposed to repeated soccer actions. So what it taught me from a physical point of view is that there's more than one way to skin a cat. You don't have to squat to get fast or, Mm. you know, uh, that sort of thing. So from a cultural point of view, it's a bit more of a selfish, less team oriented culture from a physical point of view. Um, yeah, the, the robustness that comes from training every day, snowing, cold, but that you're out there doing it really is an impressive thing to witness. And that's essentially, correct me if I'm wrong, what you've, you've, one of the things you brought back into the AFL system of that kind of physical resilience, ability to back up time and time again, despite maybe the AFL having, you know, a, a period of time from a strength and conditioning point of view where, um, you know, there was, obviously so much talk about recovery, which is obviously such a big part, but now you're understanding just how significant the resilience top, uh, piece is as well. Is that right? I think so, yeah. Yeah, that's yeah. certainly what I, what I took from, from exposure to soccer and, and, excuse me, learning about other sports. You know, when I tour to France cyclists or, you know, ultra marathon mm. runners, you know, we, we play football every Saturday um, and we train hard once a week with two little sessions around it, you know, so uh, it's very different to a lot of other, um, a lot of athletes. So yeah, we, we tried to just push that along a little bit towards that resilience pathway because mm. the more, the more you train, the more coaches can work on things. That's the, that's the biggest, my biggest selling point to Goody and Nixie and Ken Hinckley. And I want you to train more because then you'll be able to, and it's not train more by running and lifting. It's training more by kicking and catching and marking and tackling and working on things that they want to work on. Yeah. And mate, final question, um, one that's kind of been playing on my mind this whole interview is um, really around Paul Roos and who carried who when it came to basketball. He's adamant that he carried you a lot. Is there any truth in this? 
Paul was a good hustler. He'd make his way up and down court really, really well. He never sure saw a shot he didn't like either. Mm. Uh, he was very much a black hole. If you passed it to him, you just headed back to defence because you knew that he'd jack it up. Uh, but, no, we had some good times playing together. Um, uh, Monday nights at Alexandria, it was good fun. He's a very, very good player, very good player. That's right on the tennis court as well, I hear. So, yeah, uh, yeah quite, quite talented. frustrating humans that are talented as <laughs> Mate, really appreciate you taking the time. I know you're busy and it's, you know, kicked off with round one as well. And uh, condolences on the, uh, the first round loss, but um, hopefully you're uh, there on the, the, the final weekend of September, hopefully alongside the Demons. <laughs> no worries, mate. That'll be a great outcome for me. Beautiful. Thanks. Time. Cheers. Thanks for tuning in this week. As always, if you enjoyed listening, please leave a review, give us a shout out across socials or share with a friend so that we can continue to share these incredible conversations with more and more people.